0: A video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study today. Today we're looking at chapter 13 of the book of Exodus. I led the first part of the study in our new Standing Firm Bible Study class at Fairview Tabernacle yesterday. And again, if you're not already involved in some Sunday morning small group Bible study somewhere, we'd love for you to join us this coming Sunday. We meet at 10.15 a.m we meet in room 209 of the Family Life Center, give me a call, text, email, or whatever, and I'll be glad to give you more information, or you can go to our website and get some more information about it. The previous Sunday, December 12th, we didn't meet for our regular Bible study because of our Christmas musical. But if we had met, our assignment that Sunday would have been to have studied Exodus chapters 5 through 12. So we're kind of skipping over those chapters. Those chapters cover the plagues on Egypt. You'll probably remember that from your when you were a kid. You studied Bible stories that included the plagues on Egypt, probably Moses leading the children of Israel out of Egypt, led up to the first Passover. I want us to at least look at that briefly. Of course it ends with Pharaoh's finally releasing the Israelites after the deaths of the firstborn sons of Egypt. But let me just say this about those chapters. There were ten plagues, right? And during those ten plagues God was showing his people and us because it's recorded in his word his absolute total power over all the Egyptian gods. And he kind of picked on them one by one. For example, the the Egyptians worshipped the Nile River. They worshipped the Nile River like a god. And they had several other gods that were associated with the Nile River. So what did God do? Well, he showed his power over the Nile River, turned the water to blood. Kind of as an interesting aside, you may remember he allowed the demonic powers working in Pharaoh's magicians to increase the misery of Egypt. In other words, they he let them duplicate the plague, but they couldn't stop it. They couldn't get rid of it. They couldn't undo it. Kind of, It's almost like he's poking fun at them, but it's pretty serious stuff. The Egyptians also had a god resembling a frog. So God sent a plague of frogs, gave them all the frogs they could handle. And, and they had a fertility goddess that they believed had the form of a cow, so God wiped out their cattle and their livestock. They happened to have a God of healing, and so God sent boils on the animals and on the men, and it included Pharaoh's magicians, made them miserable. They had a goddess who was in charge of the sky, and she was supposed to provide good weather for them, so God sent destructive hail, and that goddess couldn't do anything about it. They had a God who supposedly guaranteed good crops, so God sent locusts and destroyed their crops. You may remember the Egyptians worshipped the sun god named Ra, R-A, and God sent darkness for three days to show his power over Ra. Finally, the plague that caused Pharaoh to finally relent and let them go was the death of the firstborn of Egypt, who were not protected by the blood of the Passover lambs, of course. And Pharaoh's firstborn son, who, of course, ordinarily would have been Pharaoh after him, was considered to be a god, like Pharaoh himself. The Egyptians taught that the Pharaohs were descended from the sun god, Ra. (laughs) So what does God do? He takes his life. So God completely undoes Egypt and all their trust in their false gods. God just didn't want there to be any doubt, did he, for anyone with eyes to see who the true God really is. He wanted it to be very obvious, and it was, and it is. We get to chapter 12. There's a beautiful description of the institution of the Passover. It's a wonderful chapter, points clearly to Jesus, and we looked at it briefly a few weeks ago, but it also comes in today's study just a little bit too, so we won't say anything about it right now, but we'll get to some of it a little bit later. Today's lesson starts at chapter 13, verse 1. So let's look at that. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. The word consecrate here is the Hebrew word kadash. Sometimes it's translated sanctify. Sometimes it's translated to make holy. But it carries that idea of being set apart or separated from everybody else for special consecration to God. And who were they to consecrate? Did you pick that up? The firstborn. The firstborn. The firstborn of both men and beast. Their animals, the livestock. Let's think about that for a minute. It may be pretty difficult for us to even imagine the situation in those days as far as their firstborn son was concerned, the importance of that firstborn son in ancient times. Because there was no social security, of course, there was no government sponsored financial safety net of any kind, no Medicare, nothing like that. If a couple began to grow a little older and still had no son, they had a pretty good reason to begin to get anxious. Who's going to take care of us if and when we get too old or too weak to work? And what will happen to any unmarried daughters we might have? Or does this mean the end of our family? So when that firstborn son came and was finally born, there was a great time of rejoicing. And of course, thanksgiving to God. That firstborn son represented their future in a very tangible way. He was their hope. Very, very important to them. And you may remember that the firstborn son also received a double inheritance. That was partly because he had a lot more responsibility than his younger brothers. Because when his dad died, He became the head of the family. He was responsible for taking care of his mother, taking care of his unmarried sisters and any of the children that maybe his his brothers had died, for example, or something. Now, the truth is, the entire nation of Israel was supposed to be consecrated to God, not just the firstborn. But the firstborn were perceived to be the most important for the continuation of the family and for the nation. It was just a general understanding on their part. So it was kind of like what we call the feast of the first fruits. He's going to talk about that here also. You know, as the first fruits of that early harvest, that first early, early harvest came in, the barley harvest. People would think, "Oh, thank you, Lord, the barley harvest is coming in. We've just about eaten up all the harvest from the previous year, and it looks like we're going to be able to eat some more. We're going to have be able to eat for another year." And so God said, "Listen, I want you to enjoy that harvest." but you need to give me the first fruits. It was a making, way of making sure they were really trusting him. They knew that he was the source of their blessing. He was the source of their hope, not their harvest. And in the course of course, what we're talking about right now, not their firstborn, not the firstborn calves or lambs or even their firstborn sons. Now, we remember too, that God had just finished devastating the Egyptians' hopes in their gods, all their gods, but it culminated in You remember, don't you, the death of the hope of their firstborn sons. I mean, Egypt has been ruined, even the firstborn son of Pharaoh. And God wanted Israel to know, your hope is not in your firstborn. Not your firstborn calves, not your firstborn sons. Your hope is in me. Now, he's going to come back to destruction about the firstborn in verse 12, and we'll get there in a minute. But first, he turns our attention to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And there's more to this Feast of Unleavened Bread than we might realize at first. It's very, very fascinating. It points us to Jesus, points us to the church in some amazing ways. I want us to hear what he's got to say here. So let's look at it very closely. Verse 3, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, later it would be called the month Nisan, you are going out. The original Hebrew name for the first month was Abib, which literally means an ear of barley. It was named Abib, obviously, because that's when they began to harvest the barley crop during this early spring month. Roughly equivalent to our month of April. Maybe go back to even March sometimes because of the difference in the lunar calendar and our solar calendar. Later on, like I said, the month came to be called Nisan. And there's a lot of confusion about what Nisan originally meant other than a little Japanese car. Some say it's from a verb that meant to flee. And they translate it their flight. But it makes sense since they were fleeing Egypt. Some say it came from the Hebrew word meaning bud, as in a budding flower or a budding barley crop, I guess. Others say it came from the word meaning miracles. Anyway, Nisan and Abi both refer to the same month, the first month of the Hebrew religious calendar. Verse 5, And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which He swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month seven days you shall eat unleavened bread and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the lord unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days no leavened bread shall be seen with you no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory now you know what leaven represented don't you i'm sure you do leaven was a type of sin and we may think of particular sins like the teaching of the pharisees jesus compared to leaven and of course Pride is often represented by leaven because it puffs up. But in general, it just represents sin. And the the picture is this. God's saying, you have to deal with sin. Sin has to be gotten rid of. Now, ultimately, they can't get rid of sin. They can only do some symbolic stuff. God's going to have to be the one to get rid of their sin. And that's going to be through Jesus. But he's describing here what we call the Feast of Unleavened Bread, what he called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He gives us more details in Leviticus chapter 23. And I want us to look at that chapter for just a minute. Leviticus is the very next book after Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. In chapter 23, God gives us details about the feasts of Israel. And in verse 4, we read this. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month on the 14th day of the month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. The Lord makes clear in the New Testament that all those Passover lambs, and I'm sure you know this too, were pointing to the ultimate Passover lamb who is our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus coming? I believe the Holy Spirit just opened John's heart and mind to realize the truth about who Jesus really was and why he came. This is an amazing statement from John. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The disciples of Jesus didn't understand that very well, but God revealed it to John. They understood it after he was raised from the dead, of course. But even in his early ministry, John recognizes who Jesus is, the Lamb of God. He's the ultimate Passover Lamb. And amazingly, this shows God's amazing sense of timing and providence. Jesus was crucified on the actual day of Passover, Nisan 14th. We're told in Mark 15 that Jesus died at the ninth hour. You know what time that was? In their time? It was what we call 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It was nine o'clock. It was the ninth hour, 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Passover, Nisan 14th. Now I want to show you something here that I think it's amazing. It's fascinating to me. I don't know if it would attract you the way it does me, but it just blows me away. There's a phrase back in Exodus chapter 12, verse 6, in God's original command for observing the Passover, that most translations translate at twilight. God uses that phrase several times. When he's talking about Passover, let's look at it. You shall keep it, the lamb. He's talking about there. Keep the lamb until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. At twilight. But in Hebrew, that's an interesting phrase. The Hebrew words that are translated at twilight literally say between the two evenings, between the two evenings and so most translators assume that the first evening refers to sunset and the second evening refers to total darkness so between those two evenings would be what we always often call twilight between sunset and total darkness. Now that's a real possibility, guys. Don't don't make the mistake of me saying that these guys are all wrong. I don't think it's necessarily that I could be wrong in what I'm about to say, but there is some argument and debate about this, and I think this is fascinating. There are some significant sources that say that the ancient Jews really did not translate it that way. They didn't translate it twilight. They said that between the evenings meant between the time the sun began its downward movement you know, when it's the zenith in the sky, when it's the highest point in the sky, around noon, in other words, to the time it reached the horizon and set. So to them, between the evenings was kind of equivalent to our word afternoon. Afternoon. I don't know if you've ever heard of the famous Jewish commentator Alfred Adersheim. He was a brilliant guy. He lived in the 19th century. He wrote a wonderful book. If you've never seen it, you might want to check it out called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. And he gives a lot of interesting, fabulous information about what life was like during the times of Jesus. He was a Jew, but he was a Messianic Jew. He was a completed Jew. He grew up in a Jewish home, but he became a Jewish, I mean, a Christian believer when he was a young man. Anyway, this is what he said about this verse. Listen, he said, the period designated as between the two evenings when the Paschal Lamb was to be slain was passed. There can be no question that in the time of Christ it was understood to refer to the interval between the commencement of the sun's decline, it would be about noon, and what was reckoned as the hour of his final disappearance, the final disappearance of the sun, which would be around six p.m. The Jewish Encyclopedia makes the same point. Jewish Encyclopedia says the time between the two evenings, and the, the Hebrew word is ben ha'arbayim, was construed to mean afternoon and until nightfall. That's the Jewish Encyclopedia. And also, interestingly, there seems to be one little bit of a biblical basis for that interpretation. It's kind of an interesting passage. It's on Exodus chapter 29. Verses 38 and 39. Now, God's not talking about feasts and holy days here. He's talking about uh, daily sacrifices. He's giving them instructions for their daily sacrifice. But in that passage, he uses the same phrase that's translated at twilight. Same phrase we have here. And I think there may be a hint here about the meaning of the phrase between the evenings. We're looking at the New American Standard here because it's very close to the Hebrew. Now, this is what you shall offer on the altar two one-year-old lambs each day continuously. So he's talking about sacrifices that are going on and on and on every single day. And each day, they're supposed to offer two two lambs. You see it there? 39, the one lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other, and here the New American Standard has a footnote to let us know that the literal Hebrew word is not the word other, it's the word second. The second lamb. In other words, second as in, it's the same word God uses in Genesis 1.8 when he says the evening and the morning were the second day. Or when God said Noah's Ark will have a lower and a second and a third story. In other words, it's the word we use to mean number two, the second. The other, the second lamb, you shall offer at twilight. And again, the New American Standard has another footnote to let us know that the literal Hebrew words are between the evenings. Now, here's the problem. If the meaning of between the evenings really meant twilight, then these seem to be backward. Because the Hebrew day, you may remember this, started at sundown. So if these two lambs were to be sacrificed on the same day, and verse 38 says each day, and one of them was to be offered just after sundown, then that lamb would have had to be the first lamb. Because that's when the day began, at sundown. That wouldn't have been the second one. Because twilight comes before morning, right? (laughs) But this verse makes perfect sense if between the evenings refers to the afternoon of the day instead of the twilight when the day began. Now, I know some say, well, the ancient Jews just got it wrong. And they say it really meant late evening, just as Passover began. And, and one of the evidences they will mention, and I think this is interesting, but I think there may be another reason for this, is Jesus ate his last Passover meal with his disciples. And you remember when Jesus did that, he transformed it into the Lord's Supper. Remember that? That was the evening before he died. And we might think, well, if Jesus ate with, with his disciples as soon as Passover began, that would be the, the what we really do call twilight right after sunset on Passover. On Nisan 14, that, that might settle it, doesn't it? Maybe, maybe, I guess that's really possible, but it's also possible, I believe, that he ate it at the only conceivable time he could have eaten it on the Passover because he knew what was going to happen the rest of that night and the rest of that day. I mean, he would soon go to pray in the garden and he would be arrested and he would be, you know the rest of that, He'd beaten and treated, go through all these horrific trials that are mock trials and then taken out and beaten and 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 scourged and finally crucified. And there was no other time he could have eaten the Passover. So it makes sense to me that he took his disciples that evening as Passover began to eat the Passover and to change its meaning and say, now all the Passovers have been pointing to this. This is the ultimate Passover. And now we celebrate the ultimate Passover, the Lord's Supper. In any case, we do know that the Jews in Jesus' day did not kill their Passover lambs in the evening, when Jesus and the disciples were eating the, the Lord's Supper, the, the Passover in the, in, the, in the upper room, they killed the Passover lambs the following afternoon, what they considered to be between the two evenings on Nisan 14th. And, and do you realize that's exactly when Jesus died on the cross? On the afternoon of Nisan 14th, at the same time, all those thousands and thousands, all these lambs being sacrificed pointing to Jesus. They were being killed in Jerusalem the afternoon of Nisan 14th when the ultimate Passover lamb gave his life to identify completely with those Passover lambs to show us those, all those Passover lambs pointed to him. He died at exactly the same time they were being killed. You may remember the Jewish leaders didn't want to put Jesus to death at Passover. They wanted to kill him. Oh, yeah, they were trying to figure out how to kill him, but not on the Passover. We can't do this on the Passover. Too many people. But Jesus wanted to make it very clear. He was the one in control of his death. Oh, yes, I know. They were put, he was put to death by, by men, by ungodly men. But he's the one, he gave his life. They couldn't have killed him if he hadn't given his life. You understand that, right? He was sovereignly and providentially in total control of the time of his death. They didn't want it to happen at Passover. He said, no, it's going to happen at Passover. I'm the ultimate Passover lamb. And I think he's just showing us very clearly that all those Passover lambs from the time that they began to be sacrificed when Israel left Egypt were pointing to him. God's precision and timing is just fabulous. It's just amazing. Now, I want us to read on just a little bit further here in Leviticus 23 because there's another beautiful pointer to Jesus here, I believe. Verse 6, and on the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. Of course, this is the same Feast of Unleavened Bread we have already read about, Exodus 13, verses 6 and 7. The first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is, of course, the next day after Passover, Nisan 15. Passover is Nisan 14th, the first day of Unleavened Bread, Nisan 15th. And God tells us here that that day was to be what we sometimes call an annual Sabbath day. It was an annual high holy day. The Jews were not to do any work on that day. They were to rest on that day just like they did on the regular weekly Sabbath, which was, of course, on what we call Saturday. But this was an annual Sabbath, kind of like we might celebrate Christmas. They had several annual Sabbaths through the year. Verse 8, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is another holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. So there's another high holy day on the seventh day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That would have been the 21st day of Nisan. So, you still with me? (laughs) There were three Sabbath days in the days that followed the Passover during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Two of them were annual Sabbaths on the 15th and the 21st of Nisan. Could be on any day of the week. And, of course, they had the regular weekly Sabbath on what we call Saturday. So there were three Sabbaths that week. Here, just so you can look at it. Nisan 14th is the Passover. Nisan 15th through 21st is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Nisan 15th and Nisan 21st are annual Sabbaths that could occur on any day of the week, like like December 25th. He also tells us about this in Numbers 28, verse 16. On the 14th day of the first month is the Lord's Passover, and on the 15th day of this month is a feast. Seven days shall unleavened bread be eaten. Verse 18, on the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. Skip down to verse 25. And on the seventh day you shall have another holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. But there was one more special day during this very special week of unleavened bread. And it turned out to be the day after the regular weekly Sabbath that fell during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That day is sometimes called the Feast of the First Fruits. It's described here in Leviticus 23, verses 9 through 14. But we're not going to look at all of it. Let's just look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, You shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest. To the priests, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, and now he's talking about the regular weekly Sabbath, the day we call Saturday of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So that was the Feast of the First Fruits. Now, of course, the day after the regular weekly Sabbath would be the first day of the week, the day we call. Sunday. And you remember, I'm sure, that when the women came to the tomb after Jesus had been buried in, in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, they came early before daylight on the first day of the week. That would have been the day after the regular weekly Sabbath of the week of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And they found the grave was empty. Jesus had risen from the dead. That means he's the first fruits of the of the dead the first fruits of the resurrection three days and three nights after he was sacrificed as a perfect flawless sinless lamb of god on passover it's another beautiful illustration of god's perfect timing isn't it that feast of first fruits pointed to jesus resurrection now i know this can get a little confusing and there's several reasons why it can get confusing i mean there's there are a lot of details for one thing but But modern Jews make it confusing. They celebrate Passover on Nisan 15th. Did you realize that? Not Nisan 14th. And they usually call the week of Nisan 15th through 21st Passover week instead of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But the Lord made it very clear here in Leviticus and Numbers, Nisan 14th is the Passover. Nisan 15th through the 21st is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the day after the weekly Sabbath of that week is the Feast of the First Fruits. Another thing that can make it confusing is because sometimes <laughs> Pentecost is also called the Feast of Firstfruits because the first fruits of the wheat harvest were offered to the Lord at Pentecost. But Pentecost, also called the Feast of Weeks, is 50 days after the weekly Sabbath that fell during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Exactly seven weeks, a week of weeks, after the offering of the first fruits of the barley harvest, they would offer the first fruits of the wheat harvest. That would have been sometime during our month of June. God explains that here in Leviticus 23 also, beginning at verse 15. Let's look at it briefly. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath. And again, he's talking about the regular weekly Sabbath that fell during the week of unleavened bread, which would normally be the first weekly Sabbath that occurred after Passover. From the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. And he goes on to describe the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost. And of course, you know what happened at Pentecost in the New Testament after Jesus was crucified at Passover and after he was raised from the dead uh, celebrating the, the, the Feast of the fruits. Pentecost comes and what happens? The Holy Spirit comes. And now the followers of Christ are filled with the Holy Spirit. And they're offered now as the first fruits of the kingdom of God in the church. It's amazing. It's very exciting how God put all these things together in our New Testament. Now, if you were in our class this past Sunday, you'll probably realize, hey, this is about as far as we got. Yep, that's as far as we got. So from here on, it'll be new information or fresh information for those of you who are in class Sunday. And I want to just say one more thing about the feast. It's fascinating to see how God used them to point at us to what he was going to do through Jesus. It really is. I think it's amazing. Now, of course, there are more feasts, right? You know, there are the fall festivals as well. Several months after Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, in the fall, there were three more. The seventh month of the Hebrew calendar is the month of Tishri. It began in the fall of the year, usually what we would call late September or early October. On the first day of that seventh month, Tishri, is what they call Rosh Hashanah, the sounding of the shofar, the feast of trumpets. It was also a high holy day, it was an annual Sabbath. And then the tenth day of Tishri was Yom Kippur, day of atonement, day of fasting. And by the way, today there seems to be a lot of unnecessary confusion and maybe even arguing about exactly when all these feasts and festivals should be observed. I mean, there's a little bit of disagreement about the actual dates. I think God's pretty clear in His Word. But but you know what? Some Bible teachers I have read say that they think the confusion is deliberate, that when Jesus had risen from the dead, that unbelieving Jewish leaders deliberately tried to create confusion because the feast seemed to point way too clearly towards Jesus, and that made them uncomfortable, so they just made some adjustments to make it less likely that they would point to jesus that's what they were trying to do anyway there was one more major jewish festival that occurred from the 15th to the 22nd of tishri called the feast of tabernacles feast of booths sukkot so tishri 1 is the feast of trumpets tishri 10 is the day of atonement and tishri 15 through 22 is the feast of tabernacles and just as in the feast of unleavened bread the first and last days of that week tishri 15 and 2 22 are also annual Sabbaths, high holy days. Now, I have a reason for mentioning this. You may say, well, that's not related to what we're studying in Exodus, is it? Well, maybe not, but I, there's a reason why I want to point it out. It seems like in our day that we're living in today, it just seems almost irresistible for some people to try to use these fall feasts to predict the second coming of Jesus. I don't know if you've tuned into that or not, but you can see how they'd be tempted. For one thing, the early spring feast refer so clearly to his first coming. And they say, well, maybe the fall feast point to his second coming. And then when you see the Feast of Trumpets, and we say, wait a minute, the New Testament teaches Jesus will come at the last trumpet. And so every few years, we have some so-called prophets. And I'll put that in scare quotes. Proph- <laughs> they're not real prophets. But they're prophesying that Jesus will be coming in the fall of that year, and they associate it with the Feast of Trumpets. It's happened more than once. They just seem to always overlook the fact that Jesus didn't say, Listen, guys, if you study the feasts and festivals closely, and you study the calendar closely, you can figure out the day I'll return. (laughs) No, 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 no. He said concerning that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now, when He does come, and we're all together in His kingdom in our resurrected bodies, I think we're probably going to enjoy looking back on all this. And from that perspective, seeing how God put all the pieces together, these amazing pointers in his word. And I suspect from that perspective, we'll just be amazed at how he did it. But listen, this is so important. The purpose of him doing that is to show his sovereignty over history and sovereignty over the events of history. What's going to happen now and in the future is to show his glory. It's not there to satisfy our curiosity about the future. We'll understand it when it happens. We need to read it, try to understand as much as we can about the prophecies of the end times. I'm not saying don't study it. I'm just saying hold on to your beliefs with a loose hand here because we don't really know a lot. And there's a lot of people who really love Jesus who disagree about these things. So let's just realize that someday when we get there, we'll look back and say, wow, look at how God did all this. It's pretty amazing. All right. Let's go back to Exodus 13. Verse 8, you shall tell your son on that day is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. So God tells them you've got to pass these things on to the next generation. Now, you know, and I know, that's always been a huge responsibility for the faithful followers of Jesus, too. We've got to try to communicate these things to the next generation. And I know for us today, and I think you probably realize this is a huge challenge for us today. And obviously, our kids and grandkids are free moral agents. We, don't, we cannot force them to believe what we believe. We can take them to church. We can teach them about the Lord. We can teach them the Bible. We can pray for them. But ultimately, they're going to make their own decisions. And they're living at a time when secularism is putting enormous pressure on them to reject the upbringing, the, the Christian upbringing. Now, that's largely because both our public school system and our state-supported colleges and universities have, for the most part, fallen under complete control by secular humanists, by cultural Marxists, by pantheists by atheists, by materialists, by non-Christian worldviews that are being relentlessly driven into the minds of our kids who, in many cases, have not been taught to think biblically very well. Russell ball used to call them little skulls full of mush. You remember that? Did you ever hear him say that? And by the way, it's one of the reasons I appreciate so much your prayers for Veritas. You might stop right now just pause the video and pray for Veritas. Pray for our Warriors of Christ course at Cross Creek. And those videos are available to you and anybody that wants to use them. They're, out, they're on our website. All the videos are available, all the questions that go with each video, the questions and answers. I've encouraged several youth pastors in our area to consider using some of it, whatever they want to use, to help their kids get prepared for the secular hammering, the onslaught they're going to get here very soon. In fact, many of them are already getting it before they even get out of high school. We have to help the next generation know how we know that what we believe is true. It's not enough just to try to pass on the tradition. You understand that, right? We're not trying to pass on a nice, comforting, little religious belief that we've had all our lives and we happen to get from our parents. No, we're talking about passing on truth to our kids. We've got to understand the truth, and we've got to know why we know it's true. And we must pass these things on. And sometimes it seems like we're not really doing a very good job of it in our churches. Look again at the beginning of verse 9. These words, it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes. That verse and some other verses just like it in Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 11 led to the Jewish practice of wearing what they call phylacteries. You heard of Jewish phylacteries? Here's what they look like. In Jesus' day, it had become a source of hypocritical spiritual pride and self-righteousness. He dealt with that in Matthew chapter 23. And just as a thought, it's possible that when the Antichrist someday causes people to wear his sign on their foreheads or on their hands, it may be his attempt at a horrifying perversion of the idea behind this verse. But did you notice the words about halfway down here, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth? Did you see that? He wasn't really so interested in them carrying it on their arms As he was carrying it in their minds and being able to recite them with their mouths what he's doing here i believe is pointing us to the importance of memorizing god's word and meditating on god's word there's no substitute for that we have a bible memory club at cross creek i offer extra credits to kids who will quote verses to me but it breaks my heart it's so sad to me how it's amazing to me how few of them will take advantage of it i give pretty good extra credit on a, on a test grade if they'll just memorize some verses and especially in classes where they desperately need the extra credit <laughs> you can help me pray that god will help our kids see the value and the need to learn god's word now look at verse 11. in verse 11 he returns to the fact that the firstborn belongs to the lord the theme he started in this chapter Verse 11, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break his neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. We're given more details about this in Numbers chapter 18. In Numbers 18, God's given instructions to Aaron and to his sons, the priesthood of ancient Israel. And he says in verse 15, everything that opens the womb of all flesh, whether man or beast, which they offer to the Lord, shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall redeem, and the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem. And the redemption price, verse 16, At a month old you shall redeem them. You shall fix it five shekels in silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is twenty gerahs. But the firstborn of a cow, or the firstborn of a sheep, or the firstborn of a goat you shall not redeem. They are holy. You shall sprinkle their blood on the altar and shall burn their fat as a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So all the firstborn of the clean animals would be offered as blood sacrifices to the Lord. And this points to Jesus, of course. It pictures the ultimate blood sacrifice of the firstborn son of God, our Lord Jesus. Now back to Exodus chapter 13, verse 14. And when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand, or frontless between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And then beginning in verse 17, we learn some more about how God guided them and led them out of Egypt. Chapter 13, verse 17, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Verse 18, But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Equipped for battle. Hebrew words equipped for battle simply means they were armed. They had weapons. Remember, God made sure they had the spoils of Egypt. Later on, they may have had some of the weapons from Pharaoh's army after it washed up from the Red Sea. But, listen, here's the point. If we humans had been in charge of this exodus, we would have looked at the map, and we'd almost certainly planned a pathway on the highway that led along the Mediterranean Sea. That would have been much, much shorter. And there was an ancient trade route along that way. They called it the Via Maris. I'll show it to you on a map. See it? It went north from Cairo through the Nile Delta, right on up to the Mediterranean Sea. Went through Philistia. So it connected Egypt with Phoenicia and Syria up north of Israel. Also, humanly speaking, there would have been much more likelihood of finding food and water to go that way. (laughs) But God knew these people. And he knew that if they went that way, they were going to have to fight some very fierce enemies, and he knew they didn't have a heart for that yet. He knew that as soon as they met resistance, they would say, we're done. Back to Egypt. <laughs> he he knew they weren't ready for serious fighting yet. So he leads them in a surprising, shocking way. Now listen, guys. Stay with me. God still does that sort of thing in our lives. There are times... When we think we see the logical way for our lives to go, we think we can look ahead and see the direction we need to go. And then lo and behold, God blocks the path and he engineers circumstances into our lives that we really weren't counting on and that we really do not understand. Now maybe later on we finally understand it, but initially we tend to not understand Do you remember how God did that with Paul on his second missionary journey? On his second missionary journey, the team wanted to head towards Ephesus, Asia. You know, Asia, of course, was the Roman province on the the western part of Asia Minor. And Ephesus was the leading city. And they wanted to go to Ephesus. And they had all kinds of sense. It was a major city of the empire. A huge number of people there who needed the gospel. And listen, God did have an exciting plan for Ephesus. But not yet. It wasn't his time, so God said no. Well, they scratched their heads for a little while. Now. Well, maybe we'll just head north to Bithynia. And God said no. <laughs> kind of weird, that, you know. That, didn't the people of Ephesus and Bithynia need the gospel? <laughs> well, of course they did, and and God had a perfectly timed plan for that. But first, He wanted the gospel to go to Macedonia, to the people of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, and then He wanted it to go to Corinth. And eventually, God would use those people to support his work in other places like Ephesus and Bithynia. God had a plan. And God had a plan for these people, and they didn't understand it. In the same way, he often has plans for us that we have a hard time understanding. Just trust him, okay? (laughs) When he blocks the way, he's got a plan. God mentions the Red Sea here for the first time. He's leading them to the arm of the Red Sea to today we call the Gulf of Suez. Here it is on a map. You can see the Sinai Peninsula coming down between the Gulf of Suez and the Gulf of Aqaba. The Gulf of Suez is anywhere from 12 to 20 miles wide. It had to seem really strange, if not insane at the time, what God was doing. But God had a plan. God knew exactly what he was doing. And he's getting ready to perform one of the most spectacular miracles in all history, the parting of the Red Sea. It helped make Charlton Heston famous. <laughs> Below the Gulf of Suez, the Gulf of Aqaba, you can see the northern part of what we call the Red Sea today. It's much, much wider, maybe 100 miles across the Red Sea. Verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. That's in the last chapter of Genesis, chapter 50, verses 25 and 26. In the final words of Genesis, we read these words. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The writer of Hebrews mentions this as an act of faith on Joseph's part. He knew God was going to take him back to the promised land. So he says, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Joseph was demonstrating faith that God would keep his promises to Abraham. So they didn't bury him. They embalmed him. Put him in a box. The Hebrew word, by the way, is the same word usually translated ark. Like the ark of the covenant, a box. Joseph wanted his bones to be handy. So he could be taken back to the promised land in that box. <laughs> it was important to him as an as an act of faith to communicate, I know God's going to do what he said he's going to do. You need to bury me up there where they buried Abraham and Isaac and Sarah and Rebekah Jacob and Leah, yeah. Verse 20, they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. Pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, did not depart from before the people. So God doesn't leave any room for doubt about the direction he intends for them to go. And he doesn't leave any room for them to make their own decisions about which way they're going to go. He leads them very specifically, very dramatically, with the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. You would think, wouldn't you, that this would be just been, been incredibly reassuring to those people. But you know how many times they became angry and hostile toward Moses for the way they were being led. And of course, God was the one leading them. But it was very uncomfortable for them at times. This was not an easy trip. And they had to trust Moses completely. They had to trust the Lord completely. And at times, the way he seemed to be leading them seemed crazy to them. So they did a lot of griping, and they did a lot of complaining. But lest we be too hard on them... (laughs) or bewildered by them, I suspect that someday it'll seem very, very obvious to us that we should have been so reassured that God had promised he would never leave us, that he would lead us with his spirit. He would use his spirit and his word to give us direction, but it can be so easy for us to leave the book on the shelf, huh? Try to figure out how to do things on our own. To kind of forget that God's in charge here. God's the one leading us the right way. And especially when it gets difficult. We feel like we got to figure this out ourselves. Yeah, we tend to do that. First year I taught at Cross Creek, first part of the year, I began to think, whoa. This is more challenging than I realized it would be. I was teaching a whole lot of classes I'd never taught before. And it wasn't long. I, I was old. I mean, I'm old, older now, of course. I was old then, and it wasn't long, I began to get the thoughts, ah, maybe I didn't hear God right here. <laughs> and it's funny how we assume that God's way is supposed to be without any difficulties or without any trials or without any problems. <laughs> Isn't strange how we think that? Because the truth is it's almost always He leads us through difficult, painful times. And yet when we go through those fiery trials, Satan just seems to always be there to whisper, Wow, it's pretty tough, isn't it? You must not have heard God right. Maybe you better quit this. (laughs) Yeah, it's a temptation. Every time the going gets tough. But God was leading them very directly. We're not told exactly when God stopped using the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire to lead them. In Numbers 33, God does give us a summary of the trip all the way up to the Jordan River, and he stops the list when they're on the plains of Moab there at the Jordan River. We're also told in Joshua 5.12 that God stopped the manna as soon as they crossed over the Jordan River. So most likely that's when he took the pillars away. Okay, that concludes chapter 13, and that's where we're going to stop here today. So thanks for joining me in the study. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for anyone who's watching this video. Thank you for their perseverance and watching it to the end. And Lord, I pray that you'd bless them for watching and being into your word. And, and Lord, I thank you so much that you make your word so exciting to us. There's so many fabulous things there that you, you can open our eyes to see. And it's just thrilling what you've done as you've given us your holy word, your infallible word, your inerrant word, powerful sharp living sharper than a two-edged sword lord thank you so much for your word and thank you for what you've revealed to us here in exodus 13. and forgive us lord for the many many times when we've allowed the enemy to convince us that your word is boring <laughs> or something like that lord we know your word is not boring it's living so help us to learn how to study your word better and better and learn more and more thank you for the way you point us to jesus so clearly even here in exodus Thank you for making everything about Jesus. And thank you that we get to serve Jesus. We get to receive Jesus as our own personal Lord and Savior. The ultimate Passover lamb died for us. And we thank you so much, Lord, that you have chosen to do that. We know it's not anything we deserve. It's not anything we earn. It's not anything we could ever merit. It's simply by your grace, your mercy toward us. Lord, your love that we cannot begin to grasp. But we thank you so much. And we pray, Lord, that you would somehow use us to draw others into your kingdom, others to get to know Jesus too, that they might get to be part of this wonderful family you've made us a part of. We're all your kids in Jesus. And Lord, we thank you that we have eternal life through Jesus. Our sins are forgiven. And we're going to be with you one of these days in new glorified bodies. that are going to be awesome forever. And we're so excited. We're looking forward to that. Help us to be faithful until that day, to, to proclaim your message well, to whoever you give us an opportunity to share it with, and use us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.